Martinson with Happy Hour on the Fringe, and I'm here with Brendan Cooney, who is the artistic director and primary composer for Not So Silent Cinema. They have a show here tonight at Fringe Arts, so thank you so much for joining us, Brendan. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your musical background and like how it kind of led to Not So Silent Cinema? Um, my musical background didn't really lead in any... Um clear direction to doing this. It was a complete fluke that I ended up doing this. Um, I'm a piano player, and I've played a lot of classical and jazz piano in different contexts, and played with a lot of great musicians in the Philly area, doing all sorts of different types of music. But it was a total accident when a colleague of mine asked me to take a gig playing piano for a silent film that her, for this series that her church was doing and she said oh I'm not really an improviser I don't feel comfortable doing this do you want this gig and I said oh that sounds fun I've never even seen a silent film so I went and did the gig and it was a it was Nosferatu uh, a silent film that I've now scored and we probably have played that score now more than any of our other scores and it was a lot of fun I, I loved the film I didn't realize I was going to enjoy a scene of silent film that much and I really liked the experience of uh, playing a score to it was a really different experience um, for me musically. Um, I liked the sort of long-form narrative structure to play to and to think about. I think my mind uh, was very comfortable and I, I, that kind of musical composition and improvisatory concept appeals to me. I did a couple more of those solo piano things and then I started composing some scores for for some films, and it just sort of grew from there. Cool. So in the beginning, it was all improvised. It was just totally improvised, just me at the piano. And the scores have, um, themselves, have grown a lot from being really open-ended and uh, um, sketches with a lot of free improvisation to some of the more recent scores, which are really much more detailed in the compositionally and timed, much timed out with repeating musical themes that evolve over the course of the film and more like a, a recorded film score would have. So even though they still have a lot of improvisational elements in them, um, so that's been a slow evolution as, I guess, if I, as I've gotten more comfortable with writing for the films and gotten a little more confident and faster, I've just been able to work faster as a composer and had just, just had some, some faster composing methods. But the score we're actually doing this evening at the Fringe um, for Vampire is actually a little departure from that trend. It's, it's only from a couple years ago, but it's, it's, I guess mostly in, in response to the nature of the film, which is a strange, surreal, dreamlike film and has a structure that's, that's um, a little bit... Like they, the film was edited a couple years after it was first released, and they took out some cr crucial parts of the narrative, so it doesn't even quite make sense in places. Um, uh, we, we took a different approach to composing the score, and it actually has more of the really open-ended, free character that some of my earlier scores had, but I think it works well for the character of the film. 
Yeah, what do you look for in a film uh, before you choose it to, to compose its score? Mm. Uh, well, a few really practical things. There, you know, there's a whole world of silent film that's very interesting, and a whole there's a very s- small but rapidly enthusiastic world of silent film buffs who are into that stuff. But to sell tickets to shows and uh, pitch your show to venues, you need to be playing a film that has some kind of marketable substance to it, right? Some a name someone's heard of, like Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton, or it needs to be about vampires, or you know something marketable. Hitchcock, yeah, we do a couple of um, Hitchcock's early silent films. Um, so it needs to have something that you can sink your teeth into, some kind of hook. So that's usually now what I'm looking for, which narrows the, the amount of films that we can do a little bit. But, but we, we, I keep finding things. I, I thought I'd run out of um, scary films to do for Halloween, because we do so many of them. We do Nosferatu, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, we do Vampire, we do these two Hitchcock silent thrillers. But then, back in the spring, the Moodle Museum said, do you want to do Phantom of the Opera? And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Never, we, have never, we still haven't done that. And uh, I'd never even watched the film, and I watched it, I was like, well, this is like one of the best films I've ever seen from the silent period. I love this film. And we wrote, we, the score is great, if I do say so myself, it's a really fun score to play, and I think it sounds great, and it was like one of the best new additions to the repertoire. <laughs> Uh, now I'm now I'm thinking oh we should do more Lon Chaney films for Halloween we should do The Hunchback in Notre Dame more of those things so there's we keep finding things that I didn't know was out there I didn't know it was marketable um, Vampire the, the thing we're doing tonight I didn't even know about it but we were doing a show down at the American Film Institute um, doing the Hitchcock films and uh, some they had a series and they had all these different musicians coming to do scores and this guitar player was doing. Uh, his score to Vampire, and uh, we went and watched some of the film, and I was like, Whoa, what is this film? This is really weird. This is like, if David Lynch went back in time and made silent films or something, this is such a strange film. We have to do this sometimes. So I keep finding these gems that I didn't think were doable. Yeah, what was your uh, relationship with movies before you, you kind of fell into this? Was there, uh, was there a genre that you dug, or what did you grow up watching? Um... I don't, I don't know. Nothing, nothing, I have nothing insightful to say about that. The same, the same shit everyone else watches, I guess. Sure. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, and we talk a lot about at Fringe that um, a lot of what contemporary work is is sort of blurring the lines between these different genres and sort of through music you've kind of fallen into being a scholar on this whole mm-hmm. other yeah. thing that you weren't, you weren't expecting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really interesting historical details and cultural details and film production details you learn about the early film period by doing the silent film. And I'm no big scholar, but I usually try to at least be able to speak for like two or three minutes about a film before I do it to sound like I'm intelligent. And uh, so I just, you know, spent a few hours on Wikipedia or something reading so, so I have know my basics. And uh, this is really it's fascinating artistic period. You know, one of the cool things about the early silent films is that the concept for what a film is was still being worked out. You see all sorts of different approaches to what a film is supposed to be. Now we have a very basic idea of like how a film works, how long it is, how the story is told through 
dialogue and acting, and there really aren't that many variations when you think about that basic concept nowadays when you see a film, but if you go back to the, the 20s or even the teens, you see really different concepts for what a film is supposed to be, and a lot of those concepts are really informed by the the traditions that whatever the filmmakers came out of, right? So you have, like, the people that came out of the vaudeville tradition, like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin doing the slapstick uh, films, and that take, which is, which is this really... Um, tight storytelling really based on like second by second kind of time comic timing and the the, the sort of the forgotten art of storytelling all with physical language you know you don't need any there's no dialogue that's required at all for it to tell the story in those films um, and then you have something like um, uh, Eisenstein's movies like Bioship Potemkin or Strike which come out of this like Russian theater tradition which is this like totally other monster really um, really also like a lot of thought put into the construction of every frame but from a totally different perspective or you have like Georges Millet um, his like innovations in camera tricks and things which come out of this illusionist tradition right he had a the theater of illusion and, and it was all about just like camera tricks and there was no, no discernible plot at all or a very loose plot. It's just about like the special effects, and I mean, you have like films that are like six hours long. You know, like Hack Hoxson, the Hacks or you call it the witch, the witch documentary, right? I was gonna say and, Greed. The uh, yeah, right. The, it's uh, like four hours long. Yeah. I think it's lost now. Yeah, but. yeah. These epic things, and then you have like then you also have like the 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 comedic shorts, which were like some ways just short because of how long, how much film you could fit on a reel, and and also just short, I guess, because of the kind of vaudeville tradition of, like, short little vaudeville acts, which are, you know, broken into these little 10-20 minute routines, you know? So it's it's interesting to see, like, a, a, thing, a thing in progress and get a sense of, like, what a lot of the, I guess, a lot of things we take for granted as being, like, set, this is the way a film is, like, didn't have to be that way. Um, it just happened to be that at a certain point in time like that was became the dominant what paradigm that we thought a film was supposed to be. It makes you wonder if, if all of those different sort of strands of creative process had maintained like what kind of wealth of yeah. movies we'd have in Hollywood yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, the, the talkies, you know, that was the biggest game changer, right? I mean, and a lot of people lamented the demise of the silent film and said and now acting is no longer required to tell stories you don't need to use people need to, don't need to act anymore they stand around and talk in the screen and, they, and this is called a movie this is crap you know people were upset about like this total degradation of the art form of film that happened when talkies came out but also the when you think about it the, the art of musical accompaniment to film the live musical accompaniment to film was also immediately destroyed when the talkies came out because now you could just print a score on a film but that was this weird part of the early history of film was that silent films weren't silent there was always someone in the room playing music whether with a theater organ or a piano or an orchestra or a small ensemble there was always almost always some kind of music going on and that's an interesting whole other interesting evolution right because it's that, that time period where both actors and musicians were starting to record their themselves and deal with the you know economic effects of 
the recorded art form, where um, some people make a lot of money because they became stars, but a lot of people lost their life, at least in the long run, lost gigs and livelihood because now they were replaced by recordings. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It seems like it, it, it's this uh, immediate shift from uh, musicians being able to have this live experience with audiences and therefore, you know, actually contribute like a, a whole a whole piece, a whole project in yeah. that moment where then music became much more utilitarian in, in movie making. Like, it's used to fill these spaces between, between dialogue. And I think a composer's yeah, right, really had yeah. to sort of like pull it back and say, yeah. you know, we can have, like, a significant impact on the, the feeling of the film. Yeah, it's a really different approach, I think. I mean, I don't know, because I haven't really scored <laughs> these talking films, really, but it's, it seems like it's a different art when you have dialogue breaking up the score. It's just a different piece. sit down to compose uh, for a movie um, I guess the first part of my question is um, how much of that sort of like vibe that you were just talking about uh, that that filmmaker brought to the work how much does that inform like where you're starting it's usually, usually informing a decent amount because um, well first I try to pick my I to try to pick my musician the musical ensemble based on the character of the film so we have, you know, the Mark of Zorro, which is sort of this... I mean, the Mark of Zorro has sort of this faux Latin score with, like, mariachi and some salsa and some tango, and um, it doesn't really make sense in, like, stylistically. It's sort of like that, like, abstract Latin thing, but also the Zorro tale doesn't make actually any sense historically. You know, it's supposed to be set, set in Spanish California, but the time periods don't line up or anything, so it's, like, totally, like, sort of a exotified sort of Spanish California thing so we, that's what we do with the score it sort of gets that anyway so we have that but then like um, have a different instrumentation for the comedies with the slapstick comedies um, that's more of um, the trio and it's a classical trio but it's like a lot of jazz and classical mix and it sort of plays on the irreverence of like taking maybe classical melodies and deconstructing them in a jazz style we use that, I use that gimmick for the Chaplin films um the, uh, the Halloween film, or it's the October films, which are all the thrillers, a few different ensembles, but we've always tried to, like, choose the musical style and the musicians based on what I, character I decided to go with. Right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess I'm curious about, like, the Hitchcock films, you know, uh, because he has such, this really long, iconic career yeah. and such a distinct like musical footprint yeah. on on all of this his show like yeah. do, do the do you try to like forget that or no, do you like no i totally i was like all right let's just study some bernard herman scores from from the the greatest hitchcock films and just use some of that harmonic vocabulary so i just i did that and it was actually great because i don't always like do a lot of score study before i do something because i don't have time to do that but i was like all right this is hitchcock i like Spent some time with some Bernard Herrmann scores. Cause they're just awesome scores. Really great scores. And it was worth the time. And that same my scores that I did for the Hitchcock Silencer as um, sophisticated as his scores. Um, 
But that was the approach, and that was actually the first time that I used this like string instrumentation for the films for the for my, with two violins, a acoustic bass, and piano. And that I love. I really liked that ensemble, and now I've used that that crew or that instrument instrumentation for a few more of the silence. We used that instrumentation for the House of Usher, and for the recent score we did to uh, Phantom of the Opera. And I really like that that feel. Um, you can get more of that sort of classical feel and some of the horror film feel. I forget what the question was. No, no, you answered it perfectly. Yeah, no. uh, And uh, I guess my my second, I guess when I imagine you composing uh, for a movie, I'm imagining that you're like sitting in front of that film with your keyboard and just like watching it moment to moment over and over and over again. Is that, is that kind of what's going on? Timing, you know, a lot of, it's like so much of the compositional process. I think a lot of people think that like when people write music that it's all like this fit of inspiration and like, it's so much of it is driven by really practical, very practical considerations, right? You have a scene that lasts this long. You have these moments during the scene that you want to highlight. How many seconds do you have between those moments? You have um, some gigs coming up, and you know you only have time to rehearse once for it, but you know you have great musicians, so you gotta, so then they who can read well. So you know you want to write something that we can perform with like off the one rehearsal so you can't write anything too complicated but you also want to keep the musicians entertained or like challenge them make them feel awake so you want to write something interesting enough for them to like enjoy playing the music right so it's like very practical considerations run up and then what I'll usually do is I don't so let's say I have a scene and I'm scoring and I have these hit points I know the timing I'll write uh, kind of come with a, a loose idea, like maybe three or four bars with a certain tempo, and then I'll just say, okay, well, at that tempo, how many seconds, how many bars do I need until I get to the end of that scene, right? And then I, because this is the live thing, I say, okay, we need to have some something, as the live things, so things could, if we don't quite get the timing right, things could not quite line up right, so I need to building these safety mechanisms at the end of a musical sequence so that we can start the next sequence on time really efficiently. So we have vamps, which is a little repeated section, maybe a little vamp with an improvisation, um, different little tricks that I put in during transitions so that we can make transitions really smoothly. Just sort of these really bread and butter, like practical composing things that we've just developed over the years so that things are efficient and smooth it takes some of the stress out of things but also make them make the music better every film every every score I'm like okay I'm gonna learn from the mistakes of the last score make this one even better so it's an interesting set of constraints I think it would be fun one day to have like a in a ridiculous Hollywood budget and a full orchestra just be able to like Rehearse, <laughs> rehearse things and for like multiple days and like and whatever those people do with all the money who do scores but this is like a very lo-fi seat of the pants kind of operation it's fringe yeah it's, it's fringy <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's your favorite uh, movie to, to play that we've or to done? listen to huh. um, what are the, yeah I don't know are you a favorite Chris I, not just because we're playing it tonight, but there's something really special about the vampire film 
because it's it does incorporate a, quite a bit of electronics, and it's a really nice blend of. We were actually just discussing it on the way over here. In a lot of films, we actually have to really uh, drive the energy or the tension when we want the energy and tension to reach a certain level. With this film, because of the sort of strangeness of the visuals matched with some of the electronic sounds, we're sort of along for the ride a little bit. And there's a bit of that sort of randomness that, I don't know, I, 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 I find it really fun. So That's but, great. Yeah. And who are you? <laughs> I, am, uh, I am Chris Coyle, the bassist for some of the not-so-sound cinema films. Yeah, so we he'll be up on stage tonight. We were just having this discussion in the car here, and I, and, because we've been playing these, the Phantom score. For, well, we did a bunch of Phantom gigs this month, and that score is really very through-composed with a lot of written music. I mean, I think my score is probably like 60 or 70 pages long. Um, and this, and then this, so that's like one way of thinking about it. And it's really like Chris said, on your toes. You're like really like focused on all the reading and all the quick change, time changes and everything. Uh, and then this score for Vampire is like the polar opposite. And we were rehearsing it last night, and I was like having a hard time like making the mental shift and energy. This is like really open-ended score with these electronic elements and very dreamy and open-ended and my brain was like having a hard time getting out of the, the switching mindset so we'll see is there a on your is there a wish list is there a things I want to do yeah um, well I really would like to do you know, I've done them but I haven't done them for a while and I'd like to write new scores to um, a couple of Eisenstein's early films Battleship Potemkin and Strike. Strike, I really like. I've done a, I've done a solo piano score to that. I'd like to do a, a score to that. Um, it's in that, that category of I don't know if it's how marketable it is. Like, I, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's hard to tell. I think it's a cool film. I think it's worth doing. Maybe it would be cool. Maybe it wouldn't. I think if you can tap into that silent cinema nerd community in, yeah, uh, in Philly, there's got to be yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that's up there. Uh, we're what we're thinking of doing. Well, uh, we've been recently doing some shows at the Muter Museum, um, and which is a great uh, venue for us. And they've been like pairing the films with a, a medical lecture um, beforehand on like a topic related to the film. Um, so anyway, they really want to do um, Joan of Arc at some point next year. So that's that's. Um, yeah, that's a good market. People know that film. We haven't done that, done that yet. So. Well, your bourbon on the rocks is uh, running low, so thank you so much for oh, sitting yeah. down to chat with us. We really appreciate it. If you want to pour me another one, I could talk for an hour. <laughs> <laughs>